0: Thank you for tuning into the Tulsa Bible Church Sermons Podcast. You are listening to Pastor Jared Verweel as he continues his sermon series in Philemon. If you'd like more information on this, you can visit our website at tulsabible.org. Well, good morning. And if you guys have your Bibles, I hope you do turn to this little book of Philemon. It's just one chapter long. Your New Testament, if you hit the book of Hebrews, you've gone too far. Hope everybody enjoyed a really good Thanksgiving with your families as you guys are turning to Philemon, finding this little gem that's tucked away back there in the New Testament. Um, wanna encourage you, We are the missions team is hosting a, a movie event here at the church on December 12th, it's a Sunday I believe at 6.30. The Chosen is releasing a, uh, a special event at Christmas time this year. We're gonna host that here at 6.30 for anybody who's interested. You'll see a sign up for it online probably this week. Uh, We might take donations at the door for this, but mark your calendars now. We didn't have a chance to get it in our announcement loop for December 12th, 6.30 p.m. right here at TBC, and and thanks Kyle and the missions uh, team for putting this together for us. I wanna read through this book. For the next two weeks, we're gonna just take two Sundays to go through this very short book in the Bible. But I want to read through it in its entirety both this Sunday and next. And so if you've found it, uh, please stand where you are as we we read God's word together. You guys just follow along with me as I read. Philemon here beginning in verse one. It says, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy our brother to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, to Aphia our sister and Archippus, our fellow soldier and the church in your house grace to you and peace from god our father and the lord jesus christ i thank my god always when i remember you in my prayer because i hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the lord jesus and for all of his saints and i pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of christ for i've derived much joy and comfort from your love my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner for Christ Jesus, appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he indeed is useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you that is sending my very heart. I would, have you, I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For perhaps this is why he parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever." no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Verse 17, so if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord, refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more that I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so does Mark and Aristarchus, Demas and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. You guys remain standing as we pray together. Father in heaven, thank you so much for for your love for us. Thank you for this morning um, that we can take time and look into your word. Thank you for the week that we've had, this extended weekend of thanksgiving. We turn our hearts and affections to gratitude for all the things that you've done for us in Christ through his death and resurrection on the cross and through all the blessings that you bestow not only on us but on this entire world. Lord, we are forever grateful. We are grateful most of all for Jesus. And it's in, his son that we, it's in his name that we pray this morning. Amen. You may be seated. Philemon is a, it's a book that's all about conflict resolution. This is Relationship Reconciliation 101. And last night I was trying to figure out a good sermon illustration to come up with that talked about conflicts. When I turned on the TV and I saw one, two of the greatest conflicts that battle every single year in this great American country that we call the United States. We had Bedlam last night, we had the Iron Bull last night, and neither game disappointed. These are epic conflicts that we all all face. Uh, What is, uh, you guys know where Bedlam comes from? The word itself, where it comes from? Some of you guys probably do know the story. Um, Bedlam is a, it's an ancient English word In the 13th century, in in one of the oldest and and most picturesque and historic cities in the entire world in London, they built what was a a house for religious order, much like a monastery or a, a seminary even. You might have thought of it as that. It was built for religious purposes. And about 100 years after that, they turned it into one of the very first medieval hospitals. And hospitals at that time weren't necessarily strictly just for uh, healing people of ailments where sick people came and you could get medicines. Hospitals at that time were for anybody who needed a place to live. It was for those who were seeking refuge, those who needed a home, just uh, anybody who, had, who needed a family or, or something that you could meet their needs with this physical building. Over time, it was named after St. Mary of Bethlehem. And over time, this medieval hospital came to bring in not only the the homeless and those who needed refuge, but it actually started to serve those who were going, going crazy, uh, those who had mental illness disorders that they were wrestling with, uh, chaos, madness, the lunatics. Bedlam was officially the place, it was the first insane asylum that was ever known in the history of our world. And it was the place that you went if you wanted madness and chaos to observe everything around you just going nuts, OSU OU, every year. The housing of Bedlam. It was a, uh, it was a reporter who left a wrestling match at Stillwater at Gallagher Arena, and he said inside that place was absolute Bedlam. And from that moment on, the game OU versus OSU is is known as Bedlam. Uh, and for all of the OU fans, just we'll, I'm praying with you, praying with you guys as we continue this morning. Conflict in the body of Christ, it's not as friendly as we experience in games like Bedlam. It's actually something that's very important to our Christian walk. How we deal with conflict tells a lot about our hearts, what God's doing there, and how he has oriented us toward relationships. Um, Personalities are often used, we talk about conflicts and and dealing with conflicts in the body of Christ. Personalities are often used as as somewhat of a a mechanism to bypass conflicts and to avoid conflicts. In his uh, sermon series on healthy relationships and dealing with conflict resolution in the body of Christ, Chip Ingram lists 12 personalities that we often face with difficult aspects of conflict resolution. There are people who are critics who constantly complain and give unwanted advice. There's the martyrs of the world, forever the victim and often desiring self-pity. Those are who those who are wet blankets. They're pessimists almost universally, automatically negative about just about everything in life. There's the steamrollers, blindly insensitive, running over people. You've got gossips who spread rumors and leak secrets, which quickly turns into slander. Uh, You've got control freaks that are unable to let go of matters that are really beyond their control, that they should let go of. In our world, we face personalities of those who would be backstabbers, two-faced people, always telling the person in front of them what they want to hear, but playing both sides. They're the hypocrite in the New Testament. There's people who are cold shoulders, a person who disengages and avoids conflict at every cost. Volcanoes This is what I experienced and what I grew up with in my house. We're just gonna bottle, bottle, bottle until all the pressure builds up and then there's gonna be one gigantic release point and everybody's gonna know about it. Uh, There's sponges who are constantly in need but never uh, giving anything back to those who give to them. There's workhorse personalities in the workplace always pushing and pushing and pushing. And there's chameleons that are eager to please just about everybody, no matter what the situation is. You can always find conflict in personalities, but you can never defend conflict by personalities. Uh, when it comes down to sin, personality is no excuse for that. In dealing with conflict and resolution, the body of Christ is something that uh, scripture talks very frankly out, it's very clear on the implications and how we are supposed to handle things. Ken Sandy's book, Peacemakers, remains, in my opinion, one of the best books on biblical conflict resolution that I've ever read, and in it, he shares a quote that has stuck with me for a long time. He says, every time you encounter a conflict, you will inevitably show what you really think of God. By your actions, you will show either you have a big God or that you have a big self, And big problems. This morning, we're going to start a a two-part sermon series on biblical conflict resolution, specifically in the body of Christ. And this is a tiny, tiny book in the New Testament, but it is large on application and even doctrine. Philemon is is an appeal for believers to reconcile with one another instead of recoiling against each other. Paul doesn't want conflicts to divide, but he does want conflicts to be dealt with, ultimately to the glory of God. He often encourages diversity in the body of Christ, but he's always pursuing unity in the body of Christ. And nothing will destroy unity in relationships among believers, quite like conflict that's not held and handled correctly to the glory of God. Philemon is Relational Reconciliation 101. And before we just jump in and explain some of these, let me give you just a little bit of the background of this book, some of the specifics and some of the, uh, just the details that make Philemon stick out from the rest of the letters in the New Testament. We would consider Philemon as a prison epistle. It's one of five books that Paul wrote while he was imprisoned. The other ones are Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, and then 2 Timothy, the last book from Paul to his young protege before he's beheaded in Rome. Philemon is unique among the prison epistles in its length. It's the shortest of all Paul's letters. The only two books that are shorter than Philemon are 2 John and 3 John. Those, both of those aren't written by him at all. But it's also unique in its personal appeal. This is a very personal letter between the Apostle Paul and Philemon but we're going to see how the the beginning and the end of the book comes into play here. might not really be that private of a matter after all. There's a strong connection between Colossians and Philemon. In fact, when you pick up a commentary on Colossians, chances are it probably includes the book of Philemon at the end of it. Most scholars believe that Colossians and Philemon were written at the same time, and in fact, they were delivered by the same messenger, there's a church that meets in the house of Philemon. In my opinion, and, and I think there's a lot of uh, background study to prove this, I think that Philemon and Colossians were both written at the same time and both delivered to the same, by the same messenger to the same churches, to the church that Philemon was a part of in Colossae, but also to those churches in Colossae that, uh, that Paul wrote about with this, his packed letter of, of Colossians. The best we can do is as you think about the context of this book. I wanted to play this video at the beginning just to give you a little bit of the background and and kind of acquaint you with the, the context and the contents of this short letter. We don't know a whole lot about what happened. We don't know specifically what Onesimus did that caused this conflict between him and Philemon. But we do know a few things. We know for sure that Paul was in prison when he wrote this. During his time in prison, he met Onesimus, who was likely a runaway slave. And it's through his evangelism efforts in prison, our prison invasion ministry does this very, very well. Through his evangelism efforts in prison, Paul led Onesimus to the Lord. And as a result of that, his life was gonna be changed. And he needed to reconcile the relationships now that he had as a believer in the body. We know that Onesimus wronged Philemon. We don't know exactly how he wronged him, but he wronged him in some way, and Paul makes an appeal to Philemon to accept him, to forgive him, to reconcile, and to restore him. As Christians, here's the question. How do we deal with relationships of those who have wronged us? Specifically of other Christians who have wronged us? How do we deal with a believer who has treated us in a wrong way, ultimately to the glory of God? Paul Tripp asks it this way. Why are we as sinners better at making war than at making peace? Why are we better gunslingers than peacemakers? Part of the answer is found right here in Philemon. First point in your outline. Reconciliation begins by looking inside at your own heart, not by looking outside at someone else or something else. Reconciliation begins by looking within, not without. Verse one, read this again for you. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother to Philemon, our beloved and our fellow worker. Now, Paul refers to himself here as a prisoner of Christ Jesus, which is very unique. Most of the times when Paul opens a letter, he will say that he is an apostle. Paul, an apostle called by the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he does that, he does it to establish his authority. When we read the letters of Paul in the New Testament, we're not simply reading the thoughts and the words of a human being. We are reading the thoughts and the words of God through this human being, Paul. And he has authority as an apostle, and so he speaks on behalf and with the authority of Christ when he writes his letters to the churches and ultimately by application to us. We are reading God's thoughts. God spoke through the apostle Paul as an apostle. Here, he doesn't open up by defending his apostleship. There's only three other times that he won't do this. Philippians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians is he doesn't mention the fact that he is an apostle. Philemon is the fourth time that he does that out of 13 books. Why does Paul not decide to play the authority card? Why does he play the prisoner card, maybe the relationship card, instead of playing the authority card in this instance? And the answer is Paul's imprisonment was a subtle reminder to Philemon. Paul had sacrificed and surrendered a lot to Christ, he gave up a lot of his freedoms. He didn't do the things that he wanted to do. He wasn't controlled by his will, he was controlled ultimately by God's will. Paul sacrificed his career as a religious leader and a Pharisee. Paul sacrificed his citizenship as a a Roman. Although he was free in Christ, he had a new master now. He was actually chained to Jesus. Luther put it this way, Paul waived his rights as an apostle to encourage Philemon to waive his rights as a slave owner. Paul waived his rights as an apostle to encourage Philemon to waive his rights as a slave owner. And it brings us to this first biblical principle I wanna talk about. The people who typically have the hardest time with conflict are those who have a hard time with control and giving up ultimate control to God. When we give our rights to Christ, we are no longer the center of our world. Things no longer revolve around us, our feelings, the way that we want things to go. When we give our rights and our life to Christ, we center on Him now. Everything we do, we do for the glory and for the will of God, not for our own glory and our own significance. Questions should gravitate toward what does Jesus want, not what does Jared want. What does Robert want? If we're controlled by Christ and we give over those rights to him, we have a right to act on his behalf, not on our own behalf. There's a subtle implication here. Paul is prodding, he's poking Philemon. I gave up my rights for Christ. I want you to give up your rights for the sake of Christ and for the sake of a brother who just trusted him. Look at verse uh, verse two. It's our sister, Archippus, our fellow worker in the church that is in your house, and I know what you're saying. Jared, I know you've got a master's degree from Dallas Theological Seminary. You know great and wise things and things that other people just don't know. But did you really pronounce those two names correctly? I've got another joke on this one. I'm going to wear this one out as much as I can, and the reality is I have no idea how to pronounce. Is it Philemon or is it Philemon? Is it Archippus? Is it Archippus? I don't know. Aphia, Appia. You guys, the Greek's not gonna answer those questions. So your guess is just as good as mine. Philemon has priority of place in this list. The book is, ad- is addressed to him. And oftentimes in the letters, when you see a list of names, the first person is the most important. He receives the most attention as Paul moves through his letters. But don't move too fast here. So I thought, I thought this was a private, personal matter. I thought this was an issue for Philemon and Onesimus issue that Paul was brought into? Are we writing to the church here? Are we writing with Timothy's knowledge? What about all these other people that are listed? Luke and Demas and and all these others throughout this letter? How can you say, how can you address this one thing that should be a private matter and then bring the whole church into it? And all of a sudden it becomes public. And actually when you read the book of Philemon, here's what you'll find. Verses one through three all of the second person references are plural. They're plural use. It speaks to many. Verses 22 through 25, at the end of the letter, all of the references are plural again. Plural use there. Everything in the middle, about verse four to 21, 4 to 22, somewhere right right in there, they're all singular. What is Paul doing by bringing the church into this? Brings me to the second biblical principle there are no private matters with God. As much as we might hope there would be, as much as we want to leave things private that could be private, with God there is no private matter. Listen to Luke 8 verse 17, there's nothing hidden that will not be disclosed, there's nothing concealed that will not be known or brought out into the light. Some of us are struggling with sin, and some of us have been, have been encouraged to make big changes in our life. And we don't want anybody else to know about those things. Paul is bringing this matter into the light in public for a specific reason. Does that mean that we should bring everybody's dirty laundry into the church and just air it out? Man, I've got, Christopher, I've got an issue with you because he ate ham at Thanksgiving instead of turkey. This is a big deal at our house. We just don't do that kind of stuff around here, right? Does this give us a a green light to just come up and, and talk about everybody's sin? No, because that, in effect, would be gossip. If you're not part of the problem and you're not part of the solution, then really you need to stay out of it. But Paul is doing something different here. He's calling an accountability to the equation. He wants to bring the church into this because the church met in Philemon's house and he wanted them to keep him accountable to what he's asking him to do. Paul brings this matter to the church because saved souls matter to the church. Onesimus was an unbeliever when he wronged Philemon. Now he's a believer, and you treat believers differently in the body of Christ. They have a priority of place in our life. And we are held accountable for those relationships, not only outside of the body, but especially in the body of Christ with our brothers and sisters. Philemon can deal with the situation legally on the outside. Paul wants him to deal with it spiritually on the inside. He wants him to look in his own heart before he looks outside at everything else. Um, And he needs the help of the church to do this. Verse six, when you, when you skip down here, am just gonna keep going and, and we're gonna make some observations as we go, is the hardest book grammatically and syntactically, or the hardest verse, excuse me, in the entire book of Philemon. Verse six says this, I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Now. Paul could be saying one of about three different things, depending on a couple matters. We'll talk about this in just a second. He could be saying, like the NET translates this, I pray that the faith you share with us might be effective. He could be praying that Philemon's act of faith might become effective in the body for the sake of this relationship. Number two, he could be praying much more on an evangelistic outlook here. He could be praying for Philemon's evangelistic efforts to produce fruit through the way that he's gonna handle this situation for Philemon. Or thirdly, he might be praying that Philemon's fellowship with other believers would become effective. All of it depends on two things. Number one, how do you define share or fellowship in verse six? What does this word mean? The video stopped to talk about koinonia fellowship, so we will as well. It also depends on whether you take this as a purpose clause in verse six, coming at the heels of verse five, or a result cause based on those two things is how people will interpret it. The word here for fellowship is koinonia, and I wanna give you just a quick definition of what that means, because it is a loaded phrase when you read it. It means joint participation in a common interest or activity as a reflection of the unity of God working through the gospel. Koinonia, fellowship in the body of Christ, is participation in a common interest or activity as a reflection of the unity of God working through the gospel. Every single time that this word is used in the Old Testament Greek and in the New Testament, there's less than 10 times that it occurs. Every single time it is used in an active sense. This is a verb that has feet on it. This is a, a walking verb, a moving verb, all right? So I'm coaching uh, Henry's basketball team this year. It's a whole lot of fun. Sixth, seventh graders. Uh, and I've got some, some guys on the team that this is their first year playing basketball. So we had our first game just about a week and a half ago, just kind of getting acquainted with how this game works and what, what you do when you're out on the court when you're playing. One of our kids were playing a man-to-man defense. One of our kids doesn't understand this whole idea of like you gotta identify who you're guarding, figure out where his number is, and every time you go back on defense, you gotta find that guy. So instead, he's out there, they're playing basketball, it's all kinds of chaos is going on, and he's out at the three-point line. Meanwhile, his man is wide open right underneath the hoop. And I'm, I'm saying to him from the, from the sidelines, from the side of the court as I'm coaching, I'm not going to say his name, because I like this kid, and he's an all right kid. Get on your man. Where is your man? And I kid you not, he makes eye contact with me. It's a quiet gym. There's not a whole lot of parents, and stands aren't too filled. He turns around, and he kind of has this, like, the light bulb goes on. He looks back at me. He's like, I got gotcha. you. He turns around, and he walks <laughs> from the three-point line to his guy. Okay, we're going to call time out here. Every time I see you walking on the court, I'm gonna assume something. I'm gonna assume that you are too tired to move and run when you're playing basketball, right? Koinonia is one of these, it's one of these, these ideas, it moves. If you're gonna have fellowship in the body, you're doing something to fellowship with other people. This is not one of those things that you can say that you have fellowship with the body, but you don't do anything relationally with people there. You do fellowship. You do koinonia. Every single time it is used, it is used in an active sense. What have you done actively to build fellowship in the body of Christ here at TBC? What are the relationships that you are moving toward you are moving with in an effort for the gospel and to build a healthier TBC, and a healthier spiritual life. Some people literally come to a church to get married when they're young, carried when they're old, and buried when they're dead, and that's it. So the question for you, when you think about this kind of fellowship in the body, are you a pew sitter or are you a Christ-server? Are you actively engaged in serving in the body of Christ? Relationally intact? building into those things through discipleship relationships, or are you just coming as, a, as somebody who can take it all in, soaking, soaking everything up? You're the sponge, but never giving anything out personally. Paul says to Philemon, I pray that your heart for fellowship will be active regarding Onesimus. Put your koinonia to movement. Make it work. See what happens in the body of Christ when you extend acceptance and forgiveness to a brother. There's one other phrase I want you to pay close attention to, though. Look down at verse seven. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because of the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Now, Paul uses that specific word for heart eight times in the New Testament. Three of those occurrences are right here in the book of Philemon, in one chapter. And this isn't the normal word for heart that we typically see. Cardia is what you would read in the Greek. This one is this one is different. This word for heart is your it's your in, it's your guts. It's the seat of your emotions. It's your vital organs. That if these things aren't functioning properly, your health is severely at risk. When Paul says to refresh the hearts of those around you, he's talking about every aspect of his personality needs to be geared to thinking about how other people's hearts are gonna be affected by his actions towards knee and the body of Christ. He is getting down to that base, that root cause of everything that we say and do. It's driven by our hearts. Your ministry has a lasting, ref- refreshing effect on people, Paul says, not because it's superficial and temporary, but because it's refreshing, and it's refreshing people's hearts. He wants Philemon to start with his own heart when dealing with this conflict. He wants Philemon to look inside of him first before he looks outside at everybody else. Perhaps get the log out of your own eye before you look at the splinter that's in everybody else's eye. What have you done to contribute to this conflict? Where is your heart on this matter? Do you really care about fellowship in the body of Christ? Show me that you care. Put that to work. Let's see it in action. Interesting thing is we we don't really know how any of this turns out in Philemon. Uh, We don't know the end of the story. We just know Paul's heart behind it. We know how he's encouraging Philemon. Number one, reconciliation in the body of Christ starts by looking inside, not outside. Number two, reconciliation comes from a good personal desire, not an impersonal demand. Reconciliation comes from a desire, not a demand. Paul appeals to Philemon now to do the right thing, but he does so in a very specific way. He doesn't want to force him to do anything. He doesn't talk to Philemon like a general, or a boss, or a superior. He doesn't even appeal to him like a father. He actually appeals to him like a grandfather does. Look down at verse nine. He says, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you, I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I have become in my imprisonment. Everything for Philemon pivots on verse nine. Everything is for love's sake. He appeals to him for love's sake. Y'all ever seen The Godfather? Great movie about the mafia. If you haven't seen it, like don't, don't go look for it or, or anything like that. And you know, Parental Guardian, everybody above the age of 18 probably need to see this movie. It's just a classic. Most of you guys probably know it. If you've got some age on you, so I want to use it as an illustration. There's a phrase in these movies that's used by the mafia when things are gonna get really hard, when their livelihood is in danger, when their families are in danger. They use this phrase and it's called, we're gonna go to the mattresses. And they say that in order to protect their families. There's gonna be conflicts, they're gonna have to be dealt with, it's gonna get ugly. And so we're gonna go to the mattresses, we want you to stay here where you're gonna be protected, where you're gonna be safe. And every time there was gonna be a, a conflict here, They would use this phrase, go to the mattresses. There are always two ways that you can deal with conflicts in your life. You can forcefully deal with them by going to the mattresses, being aggressive and forcing your hand, or you can lovingly appeal to people to deal with conflict in a more constructive way. You can go to the mattresses with force, or you can go to the heart of Christ with freedom. And you can appeal to people to deal with the relational issues that they have in their life. Brings up biblical principle number three. Reconciliation is rare when people are pushed or pulled. It is much better when it is accompanied with conviction and calling. Reconciliation is rare when people are pushed or pulled. It is always better with conviction and calling. Paul Tripp says this, in all of our hearts there is a war beneath all the other wars. Our desire to set up our own kingdom is in direct conflict with the king who has come to rule in our hearts. Most of the time we fail to deal with conflicts because we wanna force our kingdom on people rather than forcing God's kingdom into our hearts and into our lives. Forcing our own will instead of having the freedom to participate in the will of God and to keep short accounts with people. Did you notice verse 10, by the way? I, I just I wanna point this out. We're gonna stop right here in the middle of the book. But verse 10 is, is such a pivotal aspect of this whole letter. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Onesimus, there's a word play here. Verse 11 says, formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and me. Onesimus in the Greek actually means useful. And as an unbeliever, in some way he was useless to Philemon. As a believer now, he's useful to God and to the church that meets in Philemon's house. And just the fact that this guy trusted Christ through Paul's ministry, now demanding a a new relationship, dealing with this, I think is, is very, very significant. Like I said, for the next two weeks, I want to encourage you to deal with conflicts. Quickly, biblically, intentionally, and carefully, ultimately, to the glory of God. And I'm gonna end just with a few points of application. Number one, refuse to tolerate disunity. When you are dealing with conflicts, whether it's in the body of Christ right here, in your families, in your relationships, at work, wherever it might be, refuse to tolerate disunity. All personal conflicts are rooted in disunity. All of them. Conflicts don't get better with age or neglect. They're not like cheese or a fine wine. They will fester, they will get more difficult. Deal with them. Rip the band-aid off and do it in a way that would please God. Don't deal with things tomorrow that you can handle today. Don't let conflicts go unresolved for a long time. Matthew 5 is very pointed on this issue. Jesus mixes no words. If you bring a a sacrifice to the altar and on your way to the altar you realize that you have an unresolved conflict with the brother in Christ, drop your sacrifice. Go reconcile with your brother, then come back and make your sacrifice to God. Chip Ingram says, unresolved conflict is not an option in the body of Christ. Unresolved conflict is not an option in the body of Christ. And I agree 100% with him. Number two. Embrace conflict as normal and unavoidable. Embrace conflict as normal and unavoidable. We live in a fallen world. Now, I don't want you to chase after and look for every opportunity you can to create conflicts with people. What I'm saying is that in a fallen world, when people sin against one another, we often say things that we would later regret. Our hearts are often pulled in a direction that we don't understand that they've been pulled to until it's too late. We are going to be the product of sinful, bad choices of ourselves. We are going to be influenced by other people's sinful and bad choices. And that means that conflicts are going to happen. On a regular basis, we're gonna experience conflicts. Peace is not an absence of conflict. Peace is not an absence of conflict, but the calming presence of Christ through the midst of a conflict. We are called to be peacemakers. That doesn't mean our our lives are gonna be void of conflict. It means that we're gonna have the presence of Christ in us through our conflicts, the Holy Spirit working through them. The enemy's number one marriages, co-workers, families over the holidays. I Just please listen to me. The enemy's number one objective in a fallen world is to divide and conquer the enemy's number one objective in a fallen world is to divide and conquer. He wants nothing more than your marriages to be divided, your relationships to be divided, the relationships that you have at work to be chaotic. He wants to convince you that things and relationships in your life are irreparable. They're irreconcilable. There's no way that you can get through it. You have to commit to the idea that every single relationship can be reconciled because Jesus has reconciled with you. He's reconciled with us while we were yet enemies of the cross. Number three, be the initiator in conflict resolution. Make it a point to be the initiator in conflict resolution. Conflict is not a bad thing, avoiding conflict is. The Bible says that it doesn't matter who started the conflict. You are responsible for dealing with it. Matthew 18 says, if a brother has offended you, you're not the offender, you're the offended person. If a brother has offended you, it's your responsibility. You go, you make this right. Chip Ingram says, when it's perceived to be your fault, take the initiative. When it's perceived to be the other person's fault, take the initiative. If there's a problem, take the initiative the health of your family, your marriage, the health of the body of Christ, this whole thing called unity in the body of Christ, it is so much more important than who's right, who's wrong, and who needs to apologize first. God calls you to take responsibility for what you can take responsibility for. And you can rest your head on your pillow at night knowing that you have handled this to the utmost respect of God's word and what he has called you to. Relationally, repairing, reconciling. Who took the initiative in our conflict between God and man? Jesus. Jesus didn't wait for us to come to him. He left the glory of heaven and came down to us to deal with the greatest conflict that we will ever face, the conflict of sin. And in so doing, he gave us the model, the perfect example of how we should approach conflicts and personal relationships that are broken in our lives. We make an appeal to center on reconciliation. We don't recoil, we don't dig our heels in, force issues longer than they need to be forced forced with. We don't retaliate, anger with anger. We don't return evil for evil, insult for insult. We take the gentle and lowly meekness of Christ, and we show that to people who have wronged us. Jesus was the only perfect person. He was the only person who could ever say, I didn't do anything wrong, and they crucified him. If you're gonna be good at handling conflict resolution, you too will often be the, the burden of punishment in the relationship. I often talk about this in marriage and marriages. When a, um, a husband doesn't feel respected, uh, a wife won't be inclined to love the husband and to respect the husband. The husband then won't be inclined to, in turn, love the wife, and you're on this crazy cycle. Uh, It's always the mature person that gets off the cycle first. Even though you're not being respected, you're still going to love. Even though you're not being loved, you're still going to respect. Because that's what God calls us to do in marriages. Jesus gave us the perfect example by dealing with a conflict before it was even there, before the foundations of the world. He was the Lamb of God that was crucified for us. He shed his blood on Calvary, bringing perfect reconciliation between two people that should never have found reconciliation in any way. He initiated it, he secured it with his blood on the, on the cross, and he continues to build that reconciliation in us through his work in the gospel in our hearts. Uh, Philemon is a tiny, tiny book, but it is, it is packed. It is packed with good relational knowledge on how we deal with believers in the body of Christ. I want you to come back next week as we continue to explore this, all right? Let me pray. Father in heaven, thank you again for uh, just the time that we could spend in your word. All of us, Lord, uh, here this morning, all of us have uh, conflicts with other, other believers, with unbelievers that need to be dealt with. If we don't have them now, it won't be long before we do have them. I pray that as TBC moves forward, as we we study this book and apply it to our hearts, we will look to repair and to reconcile those relationships, that we will keep keep short accounts with people, that we will be the initiators, that we will biblically look at these issues that we have in our life, these relational issues that need to be handled And, and through the lens of the cross of Calvary, we will model in some way what Jesus has done for us because of the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness that he has shown. Lord, I pray that we would be marked by reconciliation at TBC, in our families, in our homes. We ask this to you, Father, through the Son and by the Spirit, for you three are the one true God and there is no God besides you. Amen. Amen.